Hey, Michael. Hey, Diane. Welcome to the 2021 school year. At this point, everyone is back in school in some shape or form, and what a year it's going to be. Couldn't agree more, and it's capped for me because seeing you in person for our last episode uh, was an amazing highlight to end the summer, Diane. And as we jump back into our routine for this third season, now over Zoom, these last two ex- episodes juxtaposed together, I think, are both a reminder of what we've lost and also how much we've gained through all this. You know, with you in California and me in Massachusetts, we probably never would have started this podcast had it not been for the pandemic. And so that's a silver lining, right? Because it's been a ton of fun. And for our listeners tuning in, you know, please, please send us emails if you have questions that you would like us to cover or topics that you're curious for our take on as we really start to go down this path uh, for our third season. Because after all, we, we launched Class Disrupted at the start of the pandemic, hoping that, you know, despite all of the pain of this moment, that this major disruption to our education system could be a catalyst for redesigning our schools so they can truly serve all students and communities. And Look, we'll be the first to admit, we didn't think that this would be going into a third school year or a third season of Class Disrupted, but here we are, and we continue to be hopeful that there are opportunities amidst this dreadful experience and that we don't have to let this moment go to waste. And so we're going to be dedicating season three to a really deep and nuanced exploration of exactly what needs to be redesigned in schools. And we're going to take a big question approach, if you will, to this and explore learning and teaching from the who, what, where, when, why, and how frameworks of questions that we're all familiar with. Michael, um, that's a such a great intro to the season and a perfect intro into this week because we want to start right in by uh, diving into questions about what what kids should be learning. And, you know, we're here because this question seems to be on everybody's mind right now for at least two reasons. The first being critical race theory. And, you know, what we've seen over the last several months, is a national debate unfold uh, that so far has resulted in, uh, best I can count, eight states passing legislation that in some way bans or restricts the teaching of critical race theory and or the concepts associated with it. 20 or so other states have introduced or put placeholders in for similar legislation. And there has been federal and local school board activity all across the country related to this. So, so interestingly, the country is actually debating what, what kids should be learning in school. Uh, and that the second is another hot topic. This one labeled learning loss, uh, which has many, many people debating what schools should be teaching this year to students who, who either through testing or some other measure are assumed to have missed or lost learning. Uh, the conventional approach would, would have these students being taught remedial or lower grade level material, but many people are asserting that the best approaches to accelerating teaching, um, again, an active hot debate in the country right now about what kids should be learning. Yeah, and as often is the case, these things are political footballs of a variety of uh, teams, if you will, playing. But I've got some bad news for our listeners, or maybe some good news, depending on your perspective. But we aren't actually going to talk about either of those debates today in and of themselves. And, and in fact, 
I would argue it's a bit hard to even summarize them because as we've talked, Diane, we both have significant concerns and issues with how they've even been framed and presented and discussed. But it is important to note that as a result of all of these debates, we do have a country that is at least on some level really paying attention to what kids are learning right now. And we will take that as an invitation to dig in on that, Michael. Uh, We couldn't be happier that people are talking about that. And so, you know, when we think about, when you and I think about and talk about redesigning schools to truly prepare all students for a good life, one, one of the key considerations is what they need to learn while they're in school. And so, so let's dig in on the what. And I think there's a few things we need to do here in order to consider redesigning the system to what we want it to be. You know, if you're gonna redesign something, first you actually have to see the system as it is. You have to see it and understand it. And we also need to have a point of view about what it could be. We have to create a vision. We have to paint a vision for what it could be. And so let's see if we can do a little bit of both today. Let's start with the latter um, by playing what I call the magic wand game. Um, We do this often when we are redesigning in order to really expand our thinking. And basically what we do is we remove all constraints, rules, existing assumptions by literally pretending that we're starting school from scratch. So in doing so, let's ask ourselves, what would we want kids to learn in our brand new redesigned school? I'm game, Diane. Let's get started with this. And I'll confess that coming from the lens that I do to education topics, as you know, from an innovation perspective and so forth, I'm certainly not an expert on this topic, but I've also learned a great deal through the years. And so one of those things I've learned is to listen to folks who have thought a lot about this topic. So before I jump in with my thoughts, I want to know what's on your list. Well, um, I thought you'd never ask, Michael, so <laughs> I'm happy, I'm happy to, to start. Um, but, but don't t- sell yourself too short. Not only have you learned a lot, but you, you, you're a parent as well. And I just want to point out that one of the things we, the collective we should be doing is amplifying the perspective of parents when we are redesigning schools. Um, and to that very point, I'm going to kick us off with a category that I usually call habits of su- success. But, that, you know, there are, it's alternatively called a range of things from building blocks to life skills and a whole variety of things. Um, but, but essentially on my list, um, what I think kids should be taught and learning in school begins with one, relationship skills, relatedly group and social skills, planning, organization, self-direction, curiosity, endurance, perseverance, giving and getting feedback, self-awareness and regulation, and of course, reflection. Yeah, and I just want to pause here before you keep going for two reasons. One, a lot on your list is why people, you know, have written books about everything I need, needed to learn. I learned in kindergarten, right? Because a lot of the topics you just listed are what we think of as really that entry level curriculum into schooling, and and that'll come back in a moment. But but the second thing I want to do is, you know, I've personally come to believe that this is incredibly important. All that you listed, but I'll also surface some concerns around this one. So we're not a total echo, echo chamber. Mike Goldstein, who also started and used to run a network of charter schools, Match in the Boston area, for those that know, and has held a number of interesting roles in in the world of education since, including internationally with Bridge International, uh, has said that he's suspect about this one because there's a good deal of evidence that schools don't teach these sorts of habits well. 
Now, my own take on that is that schools haven't historically done a lot of things well, but that doesn't mean that we think they shouldn't be on the hook for teaching, say, core academic skills, or that just because it hasn't done well, it can't be done well, or that it shouldn't be done. And, you know, look, this is a broader challenge with data. It's always backward looking, but good sound theory can point a better way forward, I think. But that's a digression for another time, because the things that you listed are incredibly important for life success. And they have an increasing amount of research behind them. And as far as I can tell, schools like yours, Diane, seem to have cracked the nut on how to make progress in these areas. And part of this, I suspect, is your structure. You know, Summit is a mastery or competency-based model. So a lot of these skills are reinforced not just through asking students what to, you know, to do what I say is important, but to actually watch what I do. We, you model it in everything that you do. And so the actions align with the rhetoric. And then the second thing is that these habits of success shouldn't be taught as something extra on the plate of teachers. One more thing that you got to do or simple sloganeering as a side appetizer, which I think is how a lot of schools often treat these habits or character skills. And it also induces a lot of eye rolling among parents sometimes when you do it that way, right? But if you teach them interdependently with the academic skills and knowledge, then it's not an add-on or an afterthought or something that's replacing academics. In fact, it's reinforcing them. It's synergistic with them. It's what we do well in kindergarten and sort of forget sometimes as students get older. And I think, can you survive without them being explicitly taught? Is it possible to have personalization in, in terms of different ways to relate to people or, or you know, different ways to reflect or things like that. Of course there are, but there are smart strategies that we can be building in students intentionally through the academic teaching and learning and model them, not just talk about them and make them real for students. And, and that's why I think historically, you know, it's induced that eye rolling or the reactions of a Mike Goldstein because they've been done separately and in ways that haven't been authentic. Last thought, Diane, just really quickly, because I think it'll come up, which is people will note that the research says these habits are very predictive of life success, but only after individuals have a certain baseline of knowledge and skills that people love to point that out, right? If you don't have certain academic knowledge, these skills, you know, grit, perseverance, they're all well and good, but they don't amount to anything. But if we're now talking and having a conversation about these habits being taught in the context of academic knowledge and skills, well, then this also becomes an academic, quote unquote, conversation, if you will, because we'll do both and we'll help the academic acquisition be more effective thanks to these habits. Hmm. As I suspected, Michael, you know a lot about what is important to teach. Um, and you raised some, some really good questions, but also some critical points that I, I just want to emphasize. So first, the evidence is clear that every skill I listed is in fact a skill which means it's teachable. And so this was a question mark for a long time. So I think it's really important to, to really highlight this. You know, skeptics need to come to terms with the reality that schools have been expecting and assessing these skills for at least a century without actually teaching them. And talk about setting kids up for failure. We essentially say, we expect you to be able to do all of these things, but we aren't gonna show you how to do them. And we know that many or most of you don't have a way to learn them somewhere else. And that if you don't know them, you will struggle on the next bucket of things we're, we're about to talk about, the traditional academic skills, but we're still gonna expect that you know them. You know, in my view, a school that is redesigned for success has to find a way to teach these habits of success to all kids, it's just full, 
full stop. Second, I just want to underline a really critical point you made, which is the evidence is also clear that they are independent or interdependent, sorry, mm -hmm. not independent, yeah, not interdependent independent, yeah. with what we normally think of as important to learn in school. These aren't a side dish, as you said, they are part of the main course and need to be taught in an integrated way. We aren't piling more on in our newly designed school. We're actually integrating something that has always been assumed, but not explicit. And, and we can do so in really elegant ways in our new, our new designed school. I, I think a really great example of this from just this last week, Michael, um, is what Summit's Director of Whole Child Development, Joel Batchelor, is working on. Joel's co-designing with our school leaders as well as other members of our academic team, um, a tool set and coaching guide to support our practices for bringing students back into school after being physically out for, for over a year. And there is so much to talk about here, but I wanna to point to two aspects that really speak to what you've been, been detailing, Michael. First, the guide begins with asking educators to reflect. Reflection is one of the key habits of success. It lies at the heart of learning, and it is a skill all of our children need. Uh, to your point, the first thing we do is ask educators to do it. Do as I do. You know, second, people might be surprised that the guide is grounded in the academic skills that we know our students need. There is no distance or separation uh, in the work that the director of whole child development is doing. These are a totally integrated experience. Um, and then finally, I just want to point out that most people, most people agree that the habits of success are the skills you need in life. Over and over again, adults, employers, colleagues, everyone speaks to these skills as the quote, real life skills that'll enable them to be, to function and be successful. And so why are they, you know, we get eye rolling there, Michael, because mm -hmm. people are like, yeah, everyone knows you need these, but they don't happen in school. And so, you know, let's, assuming everyone isn't wrong, then it seems to me that our newly designed school needs to prioritize and teach them. Amen. Whew. Okay, that was pretty intense, <laughs> as it should be. But habits aren't the only what we should be teaching uh, in a redesigned school. So let's move next to a more traditional category, academic skills. And I'm gonna kick, off, kick us off with a, a pretty short list here, Michael. I've only got four things on it. Oh, wow. Reading, communication, problem solving and metacognition or like thinking about your thinking or how you learn. I, I love this list. It's shorter than I expected, I confess, <laughs> but uh, we, I may add a couple. But this is an area where I've evolved a lot of my thinking because, you know, initially uh, it was easy to say skills are context dependent, right? So my ability to communicate in the realm of education or innovation is quite high. Whereas if I got into Google in their, you know, product development for uh, something super intense with artificial intelligence, I'd be somewhat helpless to communicate because I wouldn't have the background knowledge and so forth. But what I think I've evolved to is that if we're clear on what these different skills mean, so we say communication, the, the core tenants are, you know, these five things or whatever it might be, then as we build academic knowledge, we do so through a framework of the skill so that as I go into any arena, as I learn anything new, I'm doing so with intentionality around communication and, and so forth. The, the second thing I'll just 
sort of highlight is that reading is also one of these skills that's incredibly important as a foundation. You learn to read, and that's the big set of skills. And then there are some other skills, of course, as you continue to read around how to identify certain passages and, and, and certain techniques and illusions and things like that. But your ability to read and get the main idea from a passage or think critically does become much more about your knowledge, which we'll get into. But reading itself, there's so much evidence of how to teach reading and get that skill uh, really strong in the first few years of, of a child's academic experience. And we don't do it all that well, Diane, today. Michael, there's a reason that reading was at the top of my list, and you're really tapping into to those reasons. Um, you might not know this, but I was a reading teacher early I did not know that. in my career. Um, and so, but more importantly than that, re reading is at the top of the list because I do believe, like you, it's at the heart of the academic skills schools should be teaching all the way from our youngest learners all the way through high school. Um, you know, some people think it just stops after a child initially learns to read, but that, that, true, that is not true. Um, as we've shared before, schools across the country, and you just alluded to it, are truly failing students right now in the early years by not ensuring that they learn to read. You know, when those test scores come out about the number of fourth graders in our country who, who cannot read, this, is, this should be an emergency for everyone, primarily because it's a solvable problem. It is, in my view, what elementary schools should be completely focused on nailing. And the fact that we're not doing that right now needs to be addressed in our redesigned schools. It just has to be a non-negotiable that every child learns to read. Um, and it doesn't stop there once they've learned to read. As you, you just said, um, they need to continue to develop their reading skills to read ever more challenging material and for a variety of purposes. It's also important to note here that the critics of skills-based approaches to school, I know it seems very strange that there are critics of skills-based approach to learning. Um, maybe there's better names for them, but anyway, um, they point out that reading is dependent upon knowledge of what you're reading about, which you just alluded to, Michael. And so that there is a truth and there's certainly a connection there, but the more that you know about the world, the better reader you are because you know the content of what you're reading, it enables you to be a better reader. But just like the habits list, these things are completely intertwined. And so the pulling apart, the dissection, the preferencing of one over the other is where we get into a problem. And so an elegant school design is gonna combine. Yeah, and I, totally. I, I want to come back to this more in our when we get into the academic knowledge piece, because I also think it suggests yet another way all these things are interdependent, that we don't have to make them so atomized, if you will, in yes. our school design. So so we'll come back to this in a moment. For now, I'll, just, I'll actually say Doug Lamoff has a great book called Reading. Um, I think that's the name of it that I highly recommend folks check out, because I think it does a good job of talking uh, balancing, if you will, the knowledge aspect with all the other skills and and uh, tactics that are critical as students age up. I could say I might have a different list of tactics because my schooling model might look different on the ground, but I think the principles are actually helpful there. Um, 
I also want to just tee off a couple other things. You had communication, and I would add problem solving, critical thinking, maybe even creativity to that to that list, Diane. And this is where people get sort of, I think, uh, in a lather, if you will, because they quickly say, "Well, creativity. What the heck does that mean?" Mm-hmm. And I think it's why it's so critical for any school that's tackling these skills to be super clear about what it is that you mean, that as you're learning new knowledge and progressing from a novice to an expert, that the goal of the curriculum should explicitly be in building these schools, with the ultimate goal being that as, a lear- as you learn a new field, you actually start to take these frameworks and actively use them. And critical thinking, I think, is a great example around this. There's a great book out from MIT Press by Jonathan Haber called Critical Thinking. Uh, also, the, uh, Minerva University that we are both on the board of and your, and your son is a student at uh, has done a lot of work of codifying what are these uh, skills made up of? They, they've written an entire book about uh, building the intentional university on this topic. And you know, if you're explicit about that, then say, as you're learning math, for example, Jonathan Haber does a great job of showing how as we learn math, we don't actually learn critical thinking skills in the conventional curriculum. We don't actually make these leaps for students. Instead, we just teach rote formulas and don't actually grasp the opportunity that algebra, which everyone thinks is the critical thinking class, we don't actually help people think critically because we don't structure it in a way that aligns with all the research around how to do so. So that would be a big piece of, I think, what I would do on that. And then just lastly, come back to your reflection point and metacognition, because I think those are intertwined. If you build it in the learning cycle and as you're building agency, which is one of those habits in students, Again, this all should reinforce itself so that students are starting to own their own learning so that they're not just regurgitating something that's coming down from them from a teacher, but that they can start to become more and more independent learners themselves, which is what's going to be required as they go out in the world to build, yes, new knowledge, but then do something with that knowledge. Michael, I I hope as people are following this conversation, they're noticing that we are like mixing and mingling the items from mm-hmm. our different buckets on the list, which I think is either we're disorganized, that's not what it is, or we're actually proving our own point, which is the interconnectedness and relatedness of all of these items so that they are jumping from bucket to bucket and like intertwining with each other, Um, which has me wanting to loop back to knowledge. We've, We've noted knowledge a couple of times already. This is probably the most familiar thing that schools are charged with teaching, with kids are charged with learning and sort of the historical heart of schools. Let's start by connecting it back to reading, um, as well as your great add uh, to the list, curiosity. Interestingly, of course, knowledge is something students should be learning in school. You know, we're not going to take that off our our future redesign list. but, But how I think about this based upon the science of human development is is sort of in concentric circles. So naturally, humans are curious about themselves. And so you should start your knowledge there from the littlest, the youngest ages. It's intuitive for parents if you're watching kids, you know. And, And so knowledge starts there. And, you know, quite frankly, it persist throughout our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm still learning all sorts of things about myself and spending a lot of time on it. (laughs) I I will Uh, readily say that's true for me too. (laughs) 
Second is knowledge about my community, which begins small, sort of with my family, my neighborhood, my school, and moves in ever-expanding circles. And then and, and I would put my sort of last category of knowledge as where my curiosity takes me. And to your point, curiosity is perhaps the most powerful learning tool humans have, literally the most powerful learning tool humans have. And they're, this is one that they're actually naturally born with, unlike so many of these other skills. So I didn't originally put it on my list because for me, it's so much less about schools teaching curiosity. And I'll be honest, the evidence there is a little bit thin, it's so much more about schools not squeezing it out of children, not sort of pummeling them and getting rid of their curiosity, but instead cultivating and nurturing it. Um, and I would say, you, you talked about some of the things schools are not very good at doing historically. I would say one thing they're excellent at doing historically is beating curiosity out of kids. Um, yeah, and there are counterexamples, right? Where there are schools set up that don't beat curiosity out. And so that's why we know that it can be done in a different way to your, to your point and not set up as a game that you're playing as opposed to just excitement about all of you know these three categories you just listed. I'll also say your three categories, incidentally, align very neatly to how Montessori right yes. thinks about its curriculum development over time. And when you introduce things from natural history or science or you know space and things like that into the curriculum, that it builds out from this centeredness to a more you know further and further out concepts and abstractions and so forth. So it, it, it's interesting. I, I like your framework. It's super simple to remember. So I, I, I'm going to hold on to that. But w one other thought, because I suspect people are saying, okay, well, what about the subjects though? And so I just yeah. want to tackle that from a different point of view, if that's okay. Because I, I think it's complimentary and we can certainly do a lot more in future episodes on this. But my own take is that the American schooling system has some of the basic building blocks more right than wrong, but that we have the silos and categories within probably incorrect. So, so what I mean by that is, you know, our mathematics, history and civics, languages, sciences, those are probably the right headers, broadly speaking. But within them, we probably have some outdated categories, uh, both within those silos, but also across them. And, and so on the first one, on the outdated categories, for example, I'll come back to that algebra example I used earlier, and I've written about this, and I think you're on the same page as me. You know, why algebra over, say, statistics or data analytics or things like that? Why not engineering as opposed to, you know, biology, chemistry, physics? Uh, computational thinking is a huge topic right now. And when I say that, I don't just mean coding. And by the way, this is actually probably an example that's more of a skill than knowledge that can be taught interdependently in all other subjects. We'll get into that in a moment. There's probably not nearly enough on civics. Uh, and that, I think, would fit in your second bucket about my community in those ever-expanding circles. And civics in terms of like how the system works how I can affect change in it, how do I fit within it, and the vision for what our country aspires to be, and sort of like a very hard-headed look at where it's fallen short and where it succeeds, not with sort of all the emotion that is wrapped up in that right now, but being analytical, practicing those critical thinking skills uh, and evaluation and so forth, so that we can think about you know where we've come and where we're trying to go toward. Now, the second I'll also say, I think we've probably stratified the categories way too much. Yeah. So th there's not nearly enough interdisciplinary thinking. And this is an outgrowth of 
organizations, right? Organizations mm-hmm. over time perpetuate themselves and the walls between different uh, functions become more and more concrete, if you will. But just to take one, like, you know, if, if, we, if we posit that after you've learned to read, reading becomes more about background knowledge, then actually, you actually teach reading through building coherent knowledge across all the other subject matters that are out there, meaning history, social studies, science, etc., arts, music, like all of that becomes about reading if you're doing reading and writing across these fields. And so, I, you know, and it's less about people marching, I think, through a specific canon than I would argue coherent bodies of knowledge through those different disciplines so that when you're learning about the Enlightenment, you're thinking through the scientific discoveries that happened, going through them yourselves and learning about the history and the social movements and so forth that occurred at the same time. Um, and, and you know, are there certain core th- things that all students should know? I, I'm sure that the answer is that there are a few, Diane. Um, like in terms of like how the country works and certain things like that, I'm, I'm seeing you sort of shrug a little bit, but I, I also think that there's always going to be topics that are conspicuously absent or, or even disappointingly absent. Like we always can say, I never learned about X, right? How, how could that have been? I think that's always going to be the case, I guess would be my argument. And we should be less judgmental about that and more, okay, how do we build those skills and habits through the coherent bodies of knowledge that we do tackle so that I can continue to explore. And when I hear something that I didn't know anything about, the Tulsa massacres, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about that in school. I have a window into how to learn more about it so that I can then think about how to assimilate it into this framework of how the country works and where I want the country to go. Michael, I think you're leading us into another full episode. Oh dear. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> no, it, it combines both the what we are teaching with the how and quite frankly, the who decides. And I think you've touched on that. Um, and, and in fact, maybe it's more than another episode. Maybe it's a few different episodes, which I think are critical for us to tackle. Um, so, so let's do that. Um, but let me just share a couple few high level reactions, uh, to what you've just, just put on the table for us. Um, first, when it comes to to traditional subjects like history and science, the evidence suggests that our overriding aim and approach should be about teaching kids to think like historians and think like scientists. And yes, this really does make obsolete much of the traditional organization by course or by unit. Um, you know, there's so much there. So let's come back to that. But, but you know, some of the best thinkers on this, um, Bror Saxberg is really great at describing like how you should actually think about and what the big ideas are in those in those bodies of, of subject areas. Um, the other big point you're raising is there there's a common body of knowledge that every child in the country should learn um and well i think the evidence is abundant that the answer is no but but this is where the people making the decisions are definitely not aligned with the evidence and quite frankly a lot of like what's familiar to us and our nostalgia and all of that comes into play and we all have like very thing things we're very passionate about and so in my view this is a really fascinating conversation that starts with the who but then spills into a whole bunch of other other pieces 
Um, and then the, the last point I'll make right now is there's so much more to talk about um, before we leave today. I want to offer that if we want to redesign our schools, we have to not only imagine what they can be, but we also have to see the system that they are right now. So let's just spend a minute on that. We spent almost all of our time, the magic wand worked. We got very excited about what it could be. So, so let's just spend a couple of minutes on what they are right now and just a few observations. First, the habits of success are in my view, the most significant addition, you know, they're suddenly in fashion. People are all about social emotional learning because of the pandemic and whatnot, but, but they are not meaningfully included in the vast majority of schools um, and what they're doing right now. So mm -hmm. I think that's the current sort of state of things. And so I would say they're the most significant ad in terms of what we think schools should be re redesigned to do. I think our academic list, as we noted, is significantly shorter and more focused than what you'd normally find in most schools, and notably preferences, skills that are built over multiple years, and we'll get into this at some point, like competency-based, mastery-based mm -hmm. approaches. And then finally, the knowledge list is what I would call student-centered. And so that's a very different approach than what we have now. It isn't just a laundry list of the facts and information that adults in power have decided that all kids should know. It's really personalized to the student and acknowledges that our role is to develop like unique human beings. So, so I would say those are the three key differences in my mind between what we have now in schools and our vision for for the redesign. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And as we transition out of this and jump into a, a, a final word about what we're reading and expanding in yeah. our own horizons, you know, the only push I guess I would add is all of this, as we think about student-centeredness, and I, I think you'd agree on this, is framed with what will it be necessary for each individual to be prepared to lead a successful life as they define success and match with their potential and their passions that they will build in the future. And so if people hear like something that they disagree with, I, I think we actually could peel back the layers of the onion and come to a little more commonality on, gee, yeah, maybe all students do need this particular knowledge, or maybe in this community it's really important, but in this mm -hmm. community it might be less so because of what success looks like and preparation to be successful. I most certainly agree with you, and I may have even written a book about and you may have you may lines. You may have, and it's a good framing. <laughs> Prepared, check it out. But on Speaking that note of, of books, books, yes, what, 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 what are you learning and exploring uh, right now, Diane? I'm reading a fascinating and provocative book book, Michael, called The Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel. Uh, and it is just really pushing me. I mean, how to even summarize it? I think it really is. It's a philosophical argument that is very provocative. I think it's really um, a calling into question our definition of success in our society, you know, and who we are and how we see ourselves. Um, and each other and and quite frankly has significant implications for for the conversation we're having today and that we have every week on class disrupted I'm really being provoked by it. It's fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I it's a fascinating book It's also fascinating the reaction to the book by the way Diane because mm -hmm. it is Pulled apart strange bedfellows in interesting ways like you have reviews uh, in in of, of Conservative thinkers just for example who have polar 
opposite takes on the merits of that book. And it's so it's so interesting right now. And I think it pulls on a lot of strands that have hit at some core truths and then asked some big questions of, okay, so what do we do about it? Yep. For, for me, I'll throw on my list. I finally finished the Walter Isaacson series of books. <laughs> I finished Codebreakers and I'm moving on to other things. But um, the, the, the one thing I'll just tease on here is I actually think it's a really fascinating book biography of, of Jennifer uh, Doudna researcher uh, at UC Berkeley uh, who has been on the front lines of the COVID vaccine response and gene editing and so forth and it's a fascinating window into the academic uh, systems in higher education and the competition among researchers and development of uh, groundbreaking research that leads to things that save lives and raise a lot of thorny ethical questions as well. But I also think it points to something which is th- that we don't talk nearly enough about in the what category as well, which is the fad over the last decade has been we've got to teach coding, coding, coding. And the next wave for students who are in uh, middle school right now is probably not going to be coding. It's probably going to be biotech. Um, and and I, I've become convinced over that from his book, from Susan Hockfield, the former president of MIT's book. And so I just think it's another topic that doesn't get nearly enough attention and doesn't fit neatly into those silos of today's academic curriculum. So I'll leave it there, Diane. And for all of us, this was a big episode. I hope you followed it all. We'll look forward to your reactions. And thanks, as always, for joining us on Class Disrupted. Class Disrupted.